0: Well, if you have a Bible, you might like to turn to Philippians and open it at chapter 4. If you're regularly here, you'll know we've been going through this lovely letter together, and today we come to the last chapter, and um, we'll see where it goes. So if you were here last week, I posed the question, who is the hero of your story? So I'll ask you again, who is the hero of your story? I'm going to take a guess, because you are here this morning, because you have made a deliberate choice to come to this church today and attend this service, I'm going to take a guess that deep in your heart, your greatest desire is to make God the hero of your story. I'm also gonna take a guess that, in truth, you find that really difficult. My best guess is that because, like me, you are a fallen human being, making God the hero of your story turns out to be a huge challenge. My best guess is that we all need help in knowing how to live so that God is the hero of the story? Well, I certainly do. Now I'm wondering though, whether it might be a little more simple than both you and I want to make it. I have a choice, and the choice is either to make God the hero of the story or to make me the hero of the story. And the question then becomes, how do I make God the hero of my story? In the stories Jesus told, he seems to give, in my opinion, quite a simple answer. The way to make God the hero of your story is simply this. Be rich towards God. Be rich towards God. And it seems to me that Paul has some things to say about how we might be rich towards God. Now, I'm going to read the whole of Philippians chapter 4. and I'm going to invite you as I do that. Why don't you think about what Paul might be saying about how we might be rich towards God as I read these words. And then you can tell me afterwards that you totally disagree with what I said. But that's part of the process, and at least it means you're alive and thinking. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, for whom, whom I love and long for, My joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles." Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Even then, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me more aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul begins with the word therefore. If you ever see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to look and see what it's there for. Right? And basically, in other words, it's saying, in the light of what I just said. So he has just encouraged us, I think, to make God the hero of our story. And now he says, in the light of that, here are some things to think about. And I'm wondering if what he's saying is simply this. In the light of wanting to make God the hero of your story, be rich towards God. And then here's what he might be saying about being rich towards God. You can check it out, see if you agree. Oh, I've got to do something now. I'm going to start sticking labels on something. Right. This is your house. You might not know that, but it is. Sticking a label on it. it's temporary. This is your car. Thanks to parents and toddlers, I just borrowed these out of the cupboard, hope that's all right. This is quite a clever one because it opens into a camping van but you notice what is on it? It's temporary. I'm sorry Dave. But your lovely bass guitar is temporary. (laughs) David, I'm sorry, but your lovely shirt this morning is temporary. You know this lovely building that we keep going on about? It's temporary. I bought my wife a lovely watch for her last birthday. But it's temporary. I discovered that I've got something on my head that's temporary. (laughs) It was lovely being out in the sun. But we went out in the sun and the next day I brushed my hair and went, Ow! I have discovered, however much I want to deny it, that my hair is actually getting thinner. (laughs) However, I've also discovered that you know that thing about having grey hairs makes you look even more attractive? Apparently so does having less hair. (laughs) That's what I'm going to choose to believe. (laughs) I could go around and spend all morning putting stickers on pretty much everything in this building. I could even put a sticker on you. David, if you don't want to sit there with temporary on you, that's absolutely fine, I understand. (laughs) Temporary. These are things that will not last. They are temporary. They might give us a thrill, but that thrill will fade. Eventually, all that we acquire fades. If we live for things like that, we live for what is temporary. Being rich toward God requires a different kind of living. Being rich toward God is living for that which is temporary eternal. The question now becomes, what in my life is temporary and what in my life is eternal? Paul begins this chapter by talking about two people in the church who have fallen out. So glad that never happens here. It seems that Euodia and Syntyche had once worked together, maybe even worked for Paul together, but something has gone wrong. It may even be that they were leaders in the church. We don't know that for sure, but some scholars think that might be true. Paul wants them to be reconciled because that is the way of love. And Paul knows that love is eternal. He wants these two women to be rich towards God by loving each other. You you notice that he recognises that it might not be very easy because he asks other people to help them do it. And here's the challenge. That done out of love for God is eternal. Eternal. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. When we love others, we participate in God's love. You want to be rich towards God? Love others. I heard a brilliant talk on just these two verses a couple of weeks ago when I was in Virginia. Just two verses. I had to do some soul searching. And maybe you do too. Remember, Jesus said, Love your enemies. He said that because love is eternal, and that done out of love for God is eternal. Now I'm wondering this. Who are the people in your life placed there by God for you to love? Now I want to put a caveat in here. There are biblical principles about justice and forgiveness. So why I'm not saying, and please don't hear me say... that you go up to the person who abused you and tell them all sorts of stuff. That's not what this is about. We have to be wise and we have to be mature. And there may be relationships which we need significant help working out. But the truth still stands. If you want to be rich towards God, Loving others fits the bill. What about those in our relationships at home, or at work, or at church, or in all the places we go? How can you be rich toward God by loving others? Perhaps you could make a sign and take it with you. Stick it on someone and say... Eternal. Oh, I love you then. Might not be a very practical thing to do. But you might be going through your mind as you walk around the office tomorrow. Being rich toward God means loving and enjoying the people around you. Secondly, I'm wondering if Paul is saying that being rich toward God means growing a soul that is increasingly healthy and good. I'm wondering if that's what he's getting at in verses 4 to 9. Seems to me that one of the things uh, that God loved about people was that he got to spend time with them. Think about it. Why did God create anything at all? I think he did it because he wanted to share what he already had in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he created people... So that he could share what he already had with us. God is love. Remember that's the only way that God is described in the Bible. God is love. And love always gives. It is the nature of love to give. So God loves to give of himself and spend time with his people. Think about the Garden of Eden. What does it say about God and Adam and Eve? God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Have you ever wondered about that? I think that's fantastic. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He wanted to spend time with them. And I think he wanted to do that simply because he wanted to enjoy their company. He wanted to share himself with them. All the way through the Bible, it seems, God finds ways to be with his people. He walked with Enoch and Noah. He was with Abraham and Isaac. He was with Joseph in prison. He was with the people of Israel. Symbolized by the tabernacle that was placed in the middle of all the tribes, so that every morning they got up, they got out of their tent, they saw the tabernacle, they went, What's that? And they went, Oh yeah, I remember God is with us. That's what we're gonna do when we come to pray for 20. So we're gonna put a tent in the middle, we're gonna put the chairs around it to remind us that God is present here and now. And it's not just the thing Ian made up, it's in the Bible. Because God wants to be right in the middle of his people. Then one day he was born in Bethlehem, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God made us to be with him and he wants, he longs to spend time with us. Oddly, I long to spend time with God, but I find all sorts of reasons why not to. Honestly, I I really want to be rich towards God, but I'm always making counter-offers to his offer to be with me. I'm too busy, or I'm too stressed, or I'm too lazy, or I have a lot of other fun things I'd much rather do. The truth is, I cannot make myself love God. That comes as I choose to spend time with him. And the more I spend time with him, the more I experience what I think Paul writes about in verses 4 to 9. The more I spend time with him, the more I find myself being able to recognize his presence, his love, his grace, his mercy, his blessing. The more I recognize his presence in the everyday, in the ordinary things. The more I see him in the ordinary, the extraordinary in the ordinary the less anxious I become about the things that are in truth temporary. And more and more I am able to see what is eternal. And when I spend time with Him, I am much more likely to experience the peace that this world simply cannot give me. Did you know the more stuff you had, the more you're probably going to worry about it? The answer to that is get rid of your stuff. Then you don't have to own it, you don't have to polish it, you don't have to insure it, you don't have to protect it. It's great. I have a bicycle. I lock it up. I took it into the bike shop once because it broke. And the bloke said to me, he looked at it and he said, Well, it's not new, is it? (laughs) Somebody said to me, You're going to leave your bike there? And I said, Well, would you steal that? What I think determines how I live (laughs) being rich toward God spending time with him means I am growing a soul that is healthy and good and there is nothing more than God wants than to be with me and maybe thirdly being rich towards God means being generous with your stuff. In verses 10 to 20, Paul talks about generous giving. And he commends the church in Philippi for their generous giving. Now I know that I am the minister of a generous church. This church community has a long history of being generous in its giving. And I thank God for those who have gone before us who have given generously. I thank God for the generous giving that has enabled this particular building that we are privileged to be in today to be built at all. I thank God for the continued generous giving that enables us to have a wonderful staff team to do all the things that they do and work alongside me and keep me on the straight and narrow. I thank God for the continued generosity that means we can still do all the things we can do one of which is to support things like CAP. And I thank God for all those generous, one-off, significant gifts that sometimes people in their hearts find they want to give to this particular church. I thank God for generous giving. We do, though, have a challenge before us as a community. And if you were here at Body Talk, you will know this. And if you weren't here at Body Talk, and you are a member, you should know this. <coughs> we set a budget in November at a church meeting. And the understanding of a church meeting in a Baptist church is that we agree it together together. There might be people who know about money who actually put the figures together and then we all look at it and we all say, yes, that's what we think God is calling us to do, I'm in. That's how it works in a Baptist church. And our understanding of that is that we think this is what God is calling us to do. So you as budget holders are asked to put your budget in, we map it all together and then we go, right, okay, and and a lot of all that, this is what we need to raise. And we say, this is what we think God wants us to do, this is how much money it's going to need. Right, here's what you need to know. Right now, we are £7,000 down on our giving for the same time of year as last year. So, this time last year, our giving was £7,000 more than it is right now. And our budget is a little bigger than it was last year. Now, a budget is a budget. You stick your finger in the air and you say, right, okay, this is what it's going to look like. It's not quite the same as a budget in business where you're selling a product, we have nothing to sell. We're giving it away, remember? We start with nothing. We can only do what we get given in. That's why it's slightly different. We are now halfway through the year. We have to figure out how we're going to respond, friends. And here's the deal. No one else is going to solve this problem. The only people who are going to solve it is the people of Crawley Baptist Church. It is true that when we make God the hero of the story, we become rich towards God. Being rich toward God means we are becoming generous with our stuff. The question then becomes what are we going to do, friends? Paul says that he is, in fact, content. He has learned to be content with whatever he has. And you notice he says he has learned to be content. It doesn't just happen. He's learned to be content. I'm wondering, friends, what you have learned about your stuff, that is, I remember Bill Hybels telling a story that happened in Willow Creek Church. It had to do with giving, and it had to do with giving cars to people who couldn't afford them. People in the church would give the car they didn't need or want, or they had spare. They would give it to the cars ministry, who would do all the things that needed to be done to put it right and make it good. The car would then be given to someone, maybe a family, in the church who could not afford to buy a car. When they gave the car away, the giver would put a note in the car for the person receiving the gift and the note read, you have no idea of the joy it brings me to do this for you. You have no idea of the joy it brings me to do this for you. Just imagine, friends, imagine receiving a gift like that. Now imagine giving a gift like that. And experiencing the joy, the greater joy of being rich towards God. Being rich towards God means experiencing the joy of generous giving. How might you be rich toward God? By giving generously to someone he loves. Jesus said, build up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Perhaps another way of saying that is that smart people, wise people, people rich toward God, know the difference between what lasts and what doesn't, what is temporary, what is eternal. Here's a story I love. When I think of being rich toward God and having riches, I think of two men. One of the men was part of a ministry for 20 years that my wife used to lead at Willow Creek Community Church. This is John Ortberg writing. It's not a group that thinks much about death. When you're at that age, you think about the fact you're gonna live forever. And I used to tease her that to draw a lot of people, she only had to teach on three subjects. Sex, end times, and will there be sex in the end times? Then Larry Clark died. Larry and I had gone to the same college. When he was in his 30s, he quit his job so that he could serve full-time at the church for no pay. He never married, never owned a house, never went on an expensive vacation. He just befriended people. He saw potential. He invited people into groups, into opportunities to make friends and contribute. He saw potential in discouraged people. He had a radar for lonely people. He told people that he, what he thought they would become. Not long after Nancy had taken over the ministry, Larry, while at a leadership retreat in Milwaukee, was jogging downtown in the early morning and stepped in front of a bus and was struck and killed. His loss was devastating to the group of leaders, but even they had no idea of the impact. A wake was held for Larry in the chapel of the church that week. No one was sure how many people would come. After all, Larry never married, had no children, no regular job, cars came flooding in. The wake lasted three hours. So many people came to file past the car scare. That The line went out of the chapel door for blocks. 800 people stood in line for three hours to honour him. The next day was the day of the funeral service. The chapel at Willow Creek can hold around 500 people when jammed full. Over the decade or so that we served there, many funerals were held in that chapel, several of them for people of significant stature and achievement. Only one drew so many people that it overflowed the chapel and had to be moved to the main auditorium. Larry Clark's at the service and at the wake at the reception and in the halls one person after another spoke of how his life or her life had been touched by Larry none of the stories were about Larry's possessions or achievements all of them were about Larry's capacity to love we used to wonder how Larry could afford to give all his time away Somebody at his funeral mentioned they'd heard Larry say one time that you'd be surprised how much good food you could find foraging behind Ralph's supermarket that gets thrown out or is even still in its packaged and fresh. That same decade, a funeral was held for a man named Armand Hammer. At the age of 92, Hammer was the chairman of Occidental Petroleum Company, a billionaire industrialist and philanthropist he was called by USA Today as a giant of capitalism and confidant of world leaders. It wasn't until his death that his story came out. Harvard-educated political scientist Edward Epstein wrote Dossier, The Secret History of Armand Hammer, in which he reported that Hammer got his start by laundering money for the Soviet government, then hired ghostwriters to write fictitious autobiographies of his life. He got my money through a string of broken marriages. He allowed his father to go to prison for a botched abortion, Hammer himself had performed. He neglected his only son and hid himself from an illegitimate daughter. He had no friends at Occidental where, quote, he fired his top executives as though they were errand boys. When his brother Victor died, he filed a claim of $667,000 against the $700,000 estate rather than distributing it to Victor's children and nursing homebound wife. When Hammer died, his son Julian did not attend his funeral. Neither did the members of his two brothers' families. And neither did almost anyone else. Within days of his death, Occidental distanced itself from him. The company's website doesn't mention him in its history. His pallbearers were his chauffeur, his male nurse, and other personal employees. One man was famous, courted, wealthy, connected, powerful, envied, and feared. The other man was secretly scrounged for food behind a grocery store and was loved. Which one was rich towards God? It's only stuff. If your desire is to live with God as the hero, of your story. Be rich towards God. Amen.